Hi, and welcome to Fido, an audio adventure into fiction, folklore, and fairy tales. I'm John, your host, and thanks for dropping in. Welcome back. It's been a little bit since episode 101 came out, so I'm happy to finally have something new for you. Last month has been just a little crazy, and we may not be out of the woods yet, but I'm still working on keeping the stories coming. Today, I've got a story by H.G. Wells for you. Now, he is well-known for science fiction, of course, the most famous of his works being The Time Machine. Today's story, The Red Room, is more supernatural and gothic in nature, even if it sort of alludes to the progress of science versus the spiritualist movement of his day. In fact, H.G. Wells wrote in a lot of genres, and as we will see by today's tale, he was a bit of a social commentator as well. One of the things that I really enjoy about this story is what I see as a striking stylistic similarity to Edgar Allan Poe. His influence is felt clearly, at least in The Red Room. If you recall, the other H.G. Wells story that I've done here on the show is The Flowering of the Strange Orchid, and you can check that one out over at episode 73. I think it's entirely possible that one of the next, if not the next, longer-form story that I release will be The Time Machine, so stay tuned for that sometime in the future. Pun absolutely intended. But for now, let's get on with the story. And now, as written by H.G. Wells in 1894, The Red Room. I can assure you, said I, that it will take a very tangible ghost to frighten me, and I stood up before the fire with my glass in my hand. It is your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I, I have lived, and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. Aye, she broke in, and eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see and sorrow for. I half expected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence. I put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room, and caught a glimpse of myself, abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness in the queer old mirror at the end of the room. "'Well,' I said, "'if I see anything to-night I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind.' "'It's your own choosing,' said the man with the withered arm once more. I heard the sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside, and the door creaked on its hinges as a second old man entered, more bent, more wrinkled, more aged even than the first. He supported himself by a single crutch. His eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip, half averted, hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth.' He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily, and began to cough. The man with the withered arm gave this newcomer a short glance of positive dislike. The old woman took no notice of his arrival, but remained with her eyes fixed steadily on the fire. 
I said, it's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, when the coughing had ceased for a while. It's my own choosing, I answered. The man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time, and threw his head back for a moment and sideways to see me. I caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes, small and bright and inflamed. Then he began to cough and splutter again. "'Why don't you drink?' said the man with the withered arm, pushing the beer towards him. The man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaky arm that splashed half as much again on the deal table." A monstrous shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his action as he poured and drank. I must confess I had scarce expected these grotesque custodians. There is to my mind something inhuman in senility, something crouching and atavistic. The human qualities seemed to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable with their gaunt silences, their bent carriage, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another. "'If,' I said a little louder, "'if you will show me to this haunted room of yours, "'I will relieve you from the task of entertaining me.' "'There's a candle on the slab outside the door,' "'said the man with the withered arm, "'looking at my feet as he addressed me. "'But if you go to the red room tonight—' "'This night of all nights,' said the old woman, "'you go alone.' "'Very well,' I answered. "'And which way do I go?' "'You go along the passage for a bit,' said he, "'until you come to a door, and through that is a spiral staircase, "'and halfway up that is a landing and another door covered with bays. "'Go through that and down the long corridor to the end, "'and the red room is on your left up the steps.' "'Have I got that right?' I said, and repeated his directions. "'He corrected me on one particular. "'And are you really going?' said the man with the shade, "'looking at me again for the third time, "'with that queer, unnatural tilting of the face.' "'This night of all nights,' said the old woman. "'It is what I came for,' I said, and moved towards the door. "'As I did so, the old man with the shade rose and staggered round the table, "'so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. "'At the door I turned and looked at them, "'and I saw they were all close together, dark against the firelight, "'staring at me over their shoulders, with an intent expression on their ancient faces. "'Good night,' I said, setting the door open.' "'It's your own choosing,' said the man with the withered arm. "'I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, "'and then I shut them in and walked down the chilly, echoing passage. "'I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners "'in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle, "'and the deep-toned, old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room "'in which they foregathered, affected me in spite of my efforts "'to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase. "'They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, "'an age when things spiritual were different from this of ours, less certain, "'an age when omens and witches were credible and ghosts beyond denying. "'Their very existence was spectral.' the cut of their clothing, fashions born in dead brains. The ornaments and conveniences of the room about them were ghostly, the thoughts of vanished men, which still haunted rather than participated in the world of today. But with an effort I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long, drafty subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. The echoes rang up and down the spiral staircase, and a shadow came sweeping up after me, and one fled before me into the darkness overhead. 
I came to the landing and stopped there for a moment, listening to a rustling that I fancied I heard. Then, satisfied of the absolute silence, I pushed open the baize-covered door and stood in the corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadow or silvery illumination. Everything was in its place— the house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of eighteen months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces, and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was disturbed so evenly as to be invisible in the moonlight. I was about to advance and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing, hidden from me by the corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvelous distinctness upon the white paneling, and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me. I stood rigid for half a minute, perhaps. Then, with my hand in the pocket that held my revolver, I advanced only to discover a Ganymede and Eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerve— and a porcelain Chinaman on a boule table, whose head rocked silently as I passed him, scarcely startled me. The door to the red room and the steps up to it were in a shadowy corner. I moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, thought I, that my predecessor was found, and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the Ganymede in the moonlight and opened the door of the red room rather hastily, with my face half-turned to the pallid silence of the landing. I entered, closed the door behind me at once, turned the key I found in the lock within, and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil, a great red room of Lorraine Castle, in which the young duke had died. Or rather, in which he had begun his dying— for he had opened the door and fallen headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil, of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of the place, and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition. And there were other and older stories that clung to the room, back to the half-credible beginning of it all, the tale of a timid wife and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her, and looking around that large shadowy room, with its shadowy window bays, its recesses and alcoves, one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darkness. My candle was a little tongue of light in its vastness that failed to pierce the opposite end of the room, and left an ocean of mystery and suggestion beyond its island of light. I resolved to make a systematic examination of the place at once, and dispel the fanciful suggestions of its obscurity before they obtained a hold upon me. After satisfying myself of the fastening of the door, I began to walk around the room, peering round each article of furniture, tucking up the valances of the bed, and opening its curtains wide. I pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of several windows before closing the shutters, leant forward and looked up the blackness of the wide chimney, and tapped the dark oak paneling for any secret opening. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantel-shelf, too, were more candles in china candlesticks. All these I lit one after the other. 
The fire was laid, an unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper, and I lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver, and when it was burning well I stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again. I had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me, and on this lay my revolver ready to hand. My precise examination had done me good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove, at the end in particular, had that undefinable quality of a presence, that odd suggestion of a lurking, living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude. At last, to reassure myself, I walked with a candle into it, and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood that candle upon the floor of the alcove, and left it in that position. By this time, I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although, to my reason, there was no adequate cause for the condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear— I postulated quite unreservedly that nothing supernatural could happen, and to pass the time I began to string some rhymes together, Ingoldsby fashion, of the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason I also abandoned, after a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and haunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic— the somber reds and blacks of the room troubled me. Even with seven candles, the place was merely dim. The one in the alcove flared in a draught, and the fire flickering kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring. Casting about for a remedy, I recalled the candles I had seen in the passage, and, with a slight effort, walked out into the moonlight carrying a candle and leaving the door open, and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in various knick-knacks of china with which the room was sparsely adorned, lit and placed where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some in the window recesses, until at last my seventeen candles were so arranged that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghost came I could warn him not to trip over them. The room was now quite brightly illuminated— there was something very cheery and reassuring in these little streaming flames, and snuffing them gave me an occupation and afforded a reassuring sense of the passage of time. Even with that, however, the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily upon me. It was after midnight that the candle in the alcove suddenly went out, and the black shadow sprang back to its place there. I did not see the candle go out. I simply turned and saw that the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. "'By Jove!' I said aloud. "'That draft's a strong one.' And taking the matches from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match would not strike, and as I succeeded with the second, something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw that two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. "'Odd,' I said. "'Did I do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness?' I walked back, relit one, and as I did so, I saw the candle in the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out, and almost immediately its companion followed it. There was no mistake about it. 
The flame vanished as if the wicks had been suddenly nipped between a finger and a thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadows seemed to take another step towards me. "'This won't do,' said I, and first one and then another candle on the mantel-shelf followed. "'What's up?' I cried, with a queer high note getting into my voice somehow. At that, the candle on the wardrobe went out, and the one I had relit in the alcove followed. "'Steady on,' I said. "'These candles are wanted,' speaking with a half-hysterical facetiousness and scratching away at a match the while for the mantel candlesticks. My hands trembled so much that twice I missed the rough paper of the matchbox— as the mantle emerged from darkness again, two candles in the remoter end of the window were eclipsed. But with the same match I also relit the larger mirror candles and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for a moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then, in a volley, there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room, and I struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whither to take it. As I stood undecided, an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror, I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, and then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace. Then, perceiving a better way, I dropped the matches on the iron-bound deed-box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this I avoided the delay of striking matches, but for all that the steady progress of extinction went on, and the shadows I feared and fought against returned and crept in upon me, first a step gained on this side of me and then on that. It was like a ragged storm-cloud sweeping out the stars. Now and then one returned for a minute and was lost again. I was now almost frantic with the horror of the coming darkness, and my self-possession deserted me. I leaped, panting and disheveled from candle to candle in a vain struggle against the remorseless advance. I bruised myself on the thigh against the table. I sent a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall. The candle rolled away from me, and I snatched another as I rose. Abruptly this was blown out as I swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement, and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was still light in the room— a red light that staved off the shadows from me. The fire. Of course I could still thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. I turned to where the flames were still dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps towards the grate, and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished. The glow vanished. The reflections rushed together and vanished. And as I thrust the candle between the bars— Darkness closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision, and crushed the last vestiges of reason from my brain. The candle fell from my hand. I flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and lifting up my voice, screamed with all my might, once, twice, thrice. Then I think I must have staggered to my feet— I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor, and, with my head bowed and my arms over my face, made a run for the door. But I had forgotten the exact position of the door, and I struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back, turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furniture. 
I have a vague memory of battering myself thus, to and fro in the darkness, of a cramped struggle, and of my own wild crying as I darted to and fro, of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead, a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age, of my last frantic effort to keep my footing, and then I remember no more. I opened my eyes in daylight. My head was roughly bandaged, and the man with the withered arm was watching my face. I looked about me, trying to remember what had happened, and for a space I could not recollect. I rolled my eyes into the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, pouring out some drops of medicine from a little blue phial into a glass. "'Where am I?' I asked. "'I seem to remember you, and yet I cannot remember who you are.' They told me then, and I heard of the haunted red room as one who hears a tale. We found you at dawn, said he, and there was blood on your forehead and lips. It was very slowly I recovered my memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man, that the room is haunted? He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder, but as one who grieves for a broken friend. Yes, said I, the room is haunted. And you have seen it, and we, who have lived here all our lives, have never set eyes upon it, because we have never dared. Tell us, is it truly the old earl who— No, said I, it is not. I told you so, said the old lady, with the glass in her hand. It is his poor young countess who was frightened. It is not, I said. There is neither ghost of earl nor ghost of countess in that room. There is no ghost there at all, but worse, far worse. Well, they said. The worst of all the things that haunt poor mortal man, said I. And that is, in all its nakedness, fear. Fear that will not have light nor sound, that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. It followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. Then the man with the shade sighed and spoke. "'That is it,' said he. "'I knew that was it. A power of darkness. To put such a curse upon a woman, it lurks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime, even of a bright summer's day, in the hangings, in the curtains, keeping behind you however you face about. In the dusk it creeps along the corridor and follows you, so that you dare not turn.' There is fear in that room of hers, black fear, and there will be, so long as this house of sin endures. If you're enjoying Fido, then you should definitely subscribe on your podcast platform of choice so you don't miss an episode. Make sure to rate and review Fido if you like what you're hearing, and share the show with your friends and family. Word of mouth is my best advertisement. Don't forget to leave me a comment or a question, and I might be able to read them on the air. I love hearing from my listeners. Head over to fidopodcast.com for show links and merchandise. And if you're a true fan of the show, message me about the exclusive Fedork fan t-shirt. It's not available online, so if you want one, let me know. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Fido Podcast, or join the Fido Discord server. You can find the link in the show notes. 
And if you would like to support the show more directly, you can become a patron. I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. There's behind-the-scenes content, early access to upcoming episodes, merchandise discounts, and if you join, you'll get a personal handwritten thank you from me in the mail, as well as a Fido sticker. Also, you'll get a mention here on the show. That brings us to the end of episode 101. Watch for the next episode of Fido coming soon. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you once upon a next time. Fido is a member of the Pizza Rice Podcasting Collaborative. Check us out at pizzaricepodcast.com.